Welcome to the Roll for Combat Actual Play Podcast, where our intrepid adventurers are playing through the Pathfinder adventure, The Fall of Plaguestone. Join us every week as our daring adventurers face treacherous monsters and deadly obstacles on their quest to save a town from utter destruction. Lead on, listener. Your quest awaits. Hey everyone, it's Steve from Rule for Combat, and I have the cast of Rule for Combat Pathfinder, The Fall of Plaguestone. And today we are going to give you our thoughts and feelings on the new Pathfinder 2nd Edition core rulebook. We've all read the rules, we've even played some of these rules, and we're going to tell you what we think. So, once again, I'm Steven Glicker. I run Rule for Combat. I am the GM for both the Starfinder Dead Suns Adventure Podcast, as well as now the Fall of Plaguestone Podcast. In addition, we have a few other members, if you want to introduce yourselves. Sure, it's me here, Rob Tremarco. Rob Tremarco is playing Cade Thistlerot, the halfling rogue thief. Uh, your friendly neighborhood halfling rogue here on the the podcast and this is jason mcdonald jason mcdonald is playing brixley silverthorn the gnome champion liberator um in this particular adventure i am playing brixley silverthorn gnome champion i also play tuttle blacktail on the dead sons podcast Hi, everyone. This is Lauren from No Direction. Lauren Sieg is playing Prue Frosthammer, the half-orc spirit barbarian. You might have seen me in some of our other podcasts, like Adventurous, where I play Lily Campbell, the lovable private investigator who bakes and does not murder people with toxic baked goods. I also play Sam Hamich, the tough-as-nails gang boss in our podcast, Stellar. Hello, this is Vanessa Hoskins, also from No Direction. Vanessa Hoskins is playing Celeste Carvassalon, the human angelic sorcerer. Uh, I run the Stellar Podcast, and I am pleased to be a guest on Roll for Combat to play this awesome Pathfinder 2 adventure. So I'm going to start us off, and we're going to go in the order of the book. I figure that's probably the best way to kind of cover this. We're not going to cover every single thing, but we'll cover some of the major chapters and we're just going to go through what we think, you know, what they did right, what they might have done wrong, what we still need to wait and see. But overall my impressions, I've read the rules about ten times if not more at this point. I've spoken to so many of the developers at Paizo. I've gone through like what their headset was and what they were thinking and what some of their goals were. And, you know, from what I understand, it's like they were trying to make a game that was easy to pick up, easy to play, and yet had a massive amount of depth. And probably the closest analogy that I can come to this is Magic the Gathering, which is a very similar analogy in the sense that Magic really isn't that hard to pick up and play, but the amount of depth and complexity in Magic, or if you will, Hearthstone, which is similar, is incredible. And that's kind of what they were aiming for, is that it has best of both worlds. And I actually think they kind of nailed it from what I've played so far. That's definitely what I'm seeing from it. Uh, in my local group, I'm forced to play a lot of 5th edition uh, because we have a lot of new players. And it is a little bit easier for them to get into 5th edition than it is in PF1. 
But I'm looking at the way PF2 goes, and I'm thinking, there's no reason they have to keep subjecting me to 5th edition when we have 2nd edition Pathfinder on the horizon. It is so simple to play. It is so simple to build a complex and interesting character. The three-action system is so much fun. I'm a, a big fan of 5th edition, and this iteration of Pathfinder 2, it has some nods to what 5th edition changed about the earlier editions of D&D, but it's still Pathfinder to me because you can still get really specific and deep into uh, building the character you want. Uh, I love the multiple uh, feet picks that you make. And, you know, it's like it's like building a house of Lego, you know, with the different layers and, and whatnot until you can have this unique um, character or unique structure that's very, you know, different than what someone else would make, even with the same you know, ancestry and class and background choices. Well, and I think I think that they had an interesting needle to thread here in that, you know, they want you want to have something that's still the Pathfinder we all know and love. On the other hand, you know, you are trying to bring new play. I mean, one of the reasons you do kind of a revamp on a system is to bring new people into the hobby. And, you know, so you need something that's not got that decade of learning curve or whatever on it. And so you kind of have to have something that's still complex enough for the people that love the old stuff, but it's also fairly inviting for the new stuff. And I think they did a pretty good job hitting that mark. I really like this system. Um, I know that it's gotten a little bit of flack for being too much like fourth edition, which just leaves a bad taste in everyone's mouth. But I think that this follows through on the promise that fourth edition made, which is to make a simple game with interesting characters. And 4th edition was just a little too samey, but in Pathfinder 2, like I find that you can build, like Lauren was saying, really complex, interesting characters, and everyone feels different, even though it's still easy to play, it's still well-balanced, it still uh, flows really nicely from one person's turn to the next, thanks to the three-action system. And as I said, I'm not without critiques on it, but I, I really think that this is going to be a strong system that's going to last for years. And I'm really pleased that they were able to uh, really polish the system and get it where it needs to be to, to outlast other uh, role-playing game systems. Yeah, I mean, one of the things with Pathfinder and even D&D is that there is a lot of history with these games. And you have first edition D&D, which was its own thing. You had second edition D&D, which was kind of a weirdly modified version of, you know, first edition. Then you have 3 and 3.5, which a lot of people felt was sort of the pinnacle of the gaming system. And it was good, but it had a lot of problems with the math. I've, it almost was too complex. It's, it, was a, it was a relic of its times, which is back in the 70s and 80s, having these incredibly complex systems that were almost like playing a computer game without the computer was something people wanted. But as times came and went and things change, those type of games aren't so popular anymore. And that's where 5th edition really took off. And they made a bold choice of breaking away from all the history of D&D 1 through 4 and really started with something new. And Pathfinder had to do the same thing. They had to. They couldn't keep using the same action economy and the same rules and the same things that we've known and yes it's been in the game for like 30 40 years and so some of the you know 
some of the people who want to play first edition and that's it are going to look at this and poo-poo the game. But you know what? It had to do it. It had to grow with the times. It had to change. And they did an amazing job. I really think that they did a good job. Now, I, just, I, I always use the analogy of the game Jenga. It's like it's a tower, like a game system as it, as it ages. It's like a Jenga tower where you take blocks out, you put them on top. And so you have this increasing tower of complexity. And some of the stuff conflicts with other stuff. And some of the stuff is flat out better than the stuff that came after. And it should have been that way all along. And at some point, it reaches a point where it's, you know, there's you got you kind of got to clean it out and do it over again. I mean, it just it's it makes sense to do. So I have this weird method for kind of figuring out how much I like a system or to what quality I will ascribe a game system. And it's it's based on this. I like to make really interesting characters that are difficult to run with just your regular old core classes. For example, it's not hard in any system to take a fighter who uses a longsword and have a fighter who uses a longsword. What I like about with this edition is that you can take really intricate concepts and build them much earlier. For example, Prue here is a dread knight who channels spirits into her weapon and does spirit-themed spells and is real spooky. And in, in a lot of... In this edition, it's just a barbarian with the sorcerer dedication that has armor proficiency to use heavier armor. It's level 2, where I can realize that full character concept. In 5th edition, I mean, I don't know how many levels of fighter I'd have to take and how many levels of sorcerer. It'd be a little bit tough. It'd probably be around a level 8 concept before it was done. In 2nd edition Pathfinder, maybe I could get away with it at Blood Rager and be done at level 4. The fact that I can do it at level 2 in 2nd edition makes me really like this system. And that's just what I see with a lot of these interesting characters. Uh, A lot of what you said rings with me as well. And also, um, what what makes me like a system is, hey, I would like to play a character like this character from a book, or possibly a movie, or some amalgam of both, right? Like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if I could do this like character 1, but this like character 2? you know, and then see how I can quickly, you know, get it to that state. And you're right. You can do it pretty quickly here in Pathfinder 2, you know, and I, I, I like the, the, the choice is not limiting at level one. Like you have a lot at level one, not just, okay, one, two, three, and you're done, which if you want, you can be. But if you are looking to do something unique, uh, the path is there and it's, and it's obvious and I don't think it's gonna uh, gimp a character to make a non-standard choice. Yeah, they've done a good job of leading you through getting rid of any garbage feats or feat taxes, uh, trap options that are just really not any good, and eliminating those so that every choice is a solid choice. Uh, And the difference might be between a specialist and a generalist, but every option is gonna give you something useful to do. So one thing I wanted to get into before we get too much in the classes is, and as I said, I wanted to go kind of in the order of the book. There's the introductory, which we just kind of did. And then there's ancestries and backgrounds. And again, this is one of those issues. And if you ever want to read a book about the complete history of Dungeons and Dragons to a level of detail that will make your brain melt, get the book Playing at the World by John Peterson. 
It is unbelievably detailed that goes through every single decision made during the creation and inception of D&D. And when you see it all laid out and how they really just took wargaming and converted it, you understand like how this all became what it is. And obviously a lot of that was still in the game. And that's one of my pet peeves is ancestries was that like, oh, well, if you're small, then you can only use small weapons and you can only use small armor. And then your speed isn't so good. Like there was a big detriment between small, medium and large characters. And that really was a problem. And it, it leached into other aspects of the game. Like if you find loot and things like that. And you know what? They reset it. They said, you know what? Medium, small, same difference. Doesn't matter. And everyone is kind of templated. It allows you to easily add new ancestries quickly and fast. They'll be able to add them. And they've said this. I've been listening to all the PaizoCon interviews and talking to the developers. They said they're going to be adding ancestries like by the truckload kind of like what they've been doing with Starfinder and they can and it's going to probably keep the game perfectly balanced because they have a rule set that will work and really at this point it's it's just kind of flavor and that's all you really need for ancestries it's like you don't need them to be super powerful and this one is OP and oh this one's really like having a character that's two levels higher and I felt like they did a really good job with the ancestries and I also as a side note like that they added the goblin. If we're going to talk about Goblin, I'm going to speak up here. I, I know during the playtest, there was a lot of there was a lot of vocal members of the community who had a lot to say about the Goblin, and most of it wasn't very positive. I, for one, was absolutely thrilled that they brought the Goblin, and it's always been one of my favorite races. I'm so excited that now we're represented in the core rulebook. I can just bring a Goblin to PFS like it's no big deal. I can make these interesting characters where Goblins want to be knights, so they wear... They wear pots on their heads and they ride on farm pigs. You can't do that with other races as easily. I don't know why people got mad at necessarily at playing Goblin. The, the, eventually, you know, in the Pathfinder uh, 1 books, there's so many races. It's it's like a, a cavalcade of choices. You know, if you don't want Goblins in your game, cut them out. I don't know why people get mad that it's in the core. Like, I want to kill Goblins. Great. Go ahead. You can kill evil humans, too, and evil elves or whatever. Like, why is it specially annoying to people to have races included? More, The more choice you have, the better. I'm in the middle. I'm in the middle on that. I, I don't especially like goblins personally. I would never play one. But I also have no huge problem with including them either. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's some people's cup of tea. It's not mine, but that's cool. You know, different strokes for different folks, I guess. This comes from the guy who's playing a gnome. A gnome champion, no less. But uh, gnomes are, are gnomes are good guys. I, I, there's something about good guy, bad guy. I, I like my historical good guys to stay good guys. I like my historical bad guys to stay bad guys or something. I don't know. But then again, gnome, uh, gnome and historically good. A gnome, well, a gnome uh, you know, like fake creatures took babies and stuff. You're a baby taker. That's what you are. I have promised to not take any babies in this particular campaign. <laughs> in all fairness i think people wanting bad guys to stay bad guys is where a lot of that came from folks were afraid that a new that players would pick the goblin and then just set all of the other party members on fire and just be really bad they thought goblin gave license to bad players to be bad i really think that 
folks who don't have the interests of the party in mind are going to find ways to misbehave regardless of the race, though. I don't think that the goblins should really be the whipping boy of that. True, true, true. Yeah, someone who wants to pee in the punch bowl is going to find a way to do it. Yeah, I was going to say something is that I hate to break it to you. There's been lots of instances of bad role playing and all that occurred before the goblin was a core race. Anyhow, my point is, is that I just felt, if you want to talk about this real quick, that the way they approach the ancestries, and we keep saying race because we still have to get used to ancestries, is that um, they designed it very much in the same mold as Pathfinder in that they can mix and match and add ancestries very easily to the game. You know, one of the big issues I would often see is like they would add a new ancestry like, oh, cool. Oh, it's small. OK, well, I'm never going to play that. And you would see that a lot. Like people just won't play small because in Pathfinder first edition and all the old versions of D&D, it was a detriment. Like there was a lot of problems if you were playing a small ancestry. But now it doesn't matter. Small, medium, they're more or less identical. I'm kind of glad that humans got. Well, to where they're no longer at the very top of the line. Like, it used to be that you always play humans because they're at the top of the the... line. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just be quiet then. No, no, no. What do you you want to say? I'm sorry. I always always play humans, and it bothered me that they were so strong. I, I like being able to just really immerse myself in the character, and for me, that's easier with humans or with goblins because they're absolute chaotic little beasts. And and I didn't want to feel like a power gamer for picking humans. So I kind of like the way Steven said that the the ancestries are now more flavor for your for your character. They don't have to absolutely define it. And I would argue that humans were not the top. I would say half elf is at the top. Well, which is now just a heritage of human. So you can still be a human and a half elf. Touche. I think the biggest thing that makes humans the top is they still have that ancestry feat at level one that gives them a a level one class feat instead. And because they're the only race that can do that, that makes them very powerful, especially if you're playing like marshals get a lot of power from it. Uh, Even spellcasters can get a decent amount of power from first level feats. And that is a, a power creep that others don't have. However... I mean, there are unique abilities you're missing out on. So, uh, number one, and we can talk about this with my other group of like Chris and Bob, and they will go, they will battle to the death on this one. Dark vision or low light vision is a game changer, and humans do not have it, and that is a big, big deal. That's true. That is a good point. That is. Good. So with that, let's get to the meat and potatoes classes. Now, obviously, this probably went through the biggest and most amount of changes since the playtest. And I didn't really go into the playtest. I didn't really play the playtest. Yes, I read the rules. I played very little and then I stopped. So I'm not comparing that. That's something else I want to emphasize. Like I'm looking at these rules as they are now. I'm not comparing these to the playtest rules, which I know a lot of people have been doing. And I've been reading a lot of boards where people are like, oh, how is this different than the playtest? What changed since the playtest? I'm like, you know what? The playtest is dead. It's gone. It's buried. You can take your books and throw them out. They will never be used again. This is what you have now, so ignore the playtest. But anyhow, with that, the classes, again, I think they did a masterstroke in that they gave you lots and lots and lots of little choices so you can build really complex characters. Every single class has a subclass, which I really like, so that you can 
differentiate. It's like there's so many ways to differentiate your classes that no one will have the same one. And not only that, from what I've been seeing and talking to people, people are building the same classes differently because so far, maybe, yes, maybe in a year or two, people are going to figure out the OP and the best ones. But right now, people are just trying out things because you don't, it doesn't really change your options. If you become, I don't know, a thief versus a rogue versus a scoundrel, I'm just, I forgot the exact terminologies, but like it doesn't affect the rest of your choices that much. You can really mix and match to your heart's content and really design the type of character you want. The only one that you're kind of a little shoehorned into is sorcerer. Sorcerer, your bloodline will define your 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 spells. But believe it or not, you can even get around that. There's ways to get around that and you can take different spells that are outside your class. Yeah, when I was looking at like I was looking at champion for Brixley, I mean they basically now have three different champions for the various good alignments but it's not just an alignment choice it actually kind of defines the flavor of your of your champion now lawful good is the traditional paladin uh if folk and the, like the special abilities tend to be focused on healing chaotic good is the liberator which is what brixley ended up being and, that, and a lot of the liberator special skills are based on like kind of movement and freedom of movement and things like that can we talk about champion for a minute i am so ridiculously excited that they're finally opening it up from just being all lawful good all the time with the exception of gray paladin for the longest time i've been wanting to have a seaworthy champion that that's chaotic neutral worships an angry sea god just called the assault guard well to some extent the war priest in captured some of that had some of the similar skills of a paladin and was not as locked into an alignment but i mean they're kind of making it more explicit with the champion i think it's i mean you know it's it seems like it's good stuff i mean uh, I, li I like the idea that i don't have to be you know essentially lawful stupid and just say i must save everybody i mean you know it's like in, in terms of the sort of the more flavor elements it's you know, the paladin who's about following the law versus the paladin who's all about preserving people's freedom, which is the chaotic sort of take on good. So, and it kind of gives you different things to play with. So it's, it's looks like it could be a lot of fun. I was going to say, I did think it was a missed opportunity because they could have taken champion or war priest or what have you and done the class so that you had all nine alignments represented or something like that and really made it so you have anti-paladins and gray paladins and all that stuff from the beginning and give each of them their own term if they want and they they sort of missed that you know replacing paladin with war priest but that's okay i think future books will probably expand on it and give us all the rest of that war priest flavor that everyone wants and again the way they built these classes they're very modular they're very easy to add to. They're very easy to change. And this is something that you're going to see a lot, especially in the adventure paths and especially in the future adventures, is that you can get new feats and class abilities as rewards. And that is amazing. And it's very easy to implement. It's great. I've never really seen that, you know, it's outside of like MMOs. And they'll also be able to do that with spells and you can now build your character based around rewards 
within an adventure. And yeah, you saw that in society play a little, but this is going to be rampant. Like they're going to do that everywhere because it's really flexible. Well, I think 4E kind of gave modular a bad rap because it was too modular and everything felt the same. But there is something to be said for, you know, making things easy to reproduce and easy to create your own and easy to extend. I mean, there are benefits to a modular approach, but I think, you know, it kind of got, like I said, 4E kind of made people give it the stink eye for a while. But, you know, I think it's a net positive. Anyone else want to mention anything about classes? I really enjoy how the sorcerer is actually kind of flexible. I, I know that, Steve, you mentioned that your bloodline determines your spells, and, and it does give you those bonus spells that you're used to. Uh, it also gives you some cool blood powers, uh, blood arcana, and all that fun stuff. But what I really, really like is that now your bloodline dictates entire spell lists, and all four of them are represented right from the start. And that's one thing that got me really excited about Celeste and the fact that I can play a complete divine caster and a healer and play it as someone who's completely not religious at all. Uh, she has these cool powers. They're divine in nature. She studied religion to try to make sense of them. Uh, but other than that, she is not a devout worshiper of any deity, yet she still has all this divine magic. And I think that sort of concept was something that was a little more difficult to do in Pathfinder 1st Edition. You were relegated to being an oracle, and then you had the curse and all the baggage that came with that. And this is just a nice, clean way to say, yep, I got magic as part of my system, and it's not the same for everybody. In fairness, Bob made an atheist cleric in one of our campaigns. <laughs> that was an interesting bit of uh, role-playing trickery. Oh, that is interesting. I'm actually... Uh... I mean, I, I like the class interpretations are all great. Uh, I'm a fan of the whole uh, when you're creating a character with a life path, which is kind of almost what this seems like. You know, every every choice you make, oh, here's a boost to your stats and here's some skills that you get. Oh, here's a boost to your stat and here's some skills you get. Background, class, ancestry, right? And then the choices you make under that kind of do the same thing. And then it it, it, it tells a story. It builds a story of your character, even before you even uh, maybe even come up with a, a, a background or a, a backstory, you know, it, it, it kind of pushes you in a direction and inspires you to kind of like, oh yeah, a twilight halfling. Ooh, what does that mean? Ooh, I think maybe he did some shady shit to protect his people, you know? And then mechanically, uh, you know, it's, it's a fun thing to, you know, instead of, you know, randomly rolling your stats, it's, it kind of gives the choices more meaning. That's actually something we kind of skipped over. I forgot which was under ancestries is backgrounds and backgrounds is mechanically. It's just a way to add some lore and some trained skills to your character and some abilities. But there's a lot of really, really cool backgrounds. And again, in the end, isn't building your character like, is it all numbers or is it role playing? And for better, for worse, the secret to fifth edition that's really taken the world by storm is actually the role playing. It's not the numbers. It's it's that there's a lot of role playing options and the numbers behind it and the the crunch, if you will, is I don't think that crunchy. And I think Pathfinder is going to be able to get their cake and eat it too. I think you're going to be able to build insanely cool, complex characters and have tons of crunch. I do think that's kind of uh, the blessing and the curse of fifth is that there's so little crunch. It's 
really accessible. It's easy to role play within, but you are kind of shoehorned into these very direct paths for your characters. And I'm just so excited to see how second edition looks like it's going to have its cake and eat its too. And the min, like the min maxers can still just take the background that gives them the best skills and stats to, to build the character they want to build. And they can just, you know, view it as just another thing to improve their efficiency. But if you want to create that story, there's enough different choices that you can find the combination you want where, you know, it helps tell the story, but it also doesn't really completely screw up your character. I mean, since, since background is just one of the components of building your character, you can massage it in other ways to still come up with a good character. Yeah, exactly. Um, backgrounds create a much better way to build your backstory for your character than traits did. And again, they, they fulfill the promise that traits made that, oh, you can choose these aspects of your character that give you a mechanical advantage, but also describe your, you know, your history. And the problem is everyone was just reactionary and had magical lineage and, you know, all of the same ones that were chosen over and over and over. Whereas this, I think they've done a really good balance of including mechanics in there just enough that it's not too much like you feel you're being penalized for not choosing a min-maxi choice and still being able to choose something flavorful and impactful for your character. And that actually will lead me into the next section of the book, which is skills. Because one thing the backgrounds do, which is fascinating, is that every single background that I can see always gives you a lore. Always. There's always a one lore that you learn. But unlike first edition, where there was like predefined lores and like there's a lore of religion and arcana and history and so forth, lore can be anything in this game. You can, there's no rule of what lore is. So lore is all over the place and you actually get a specific lore based on your background. And with that, the skills were, well, fairly redone. They're exactly the same and yet completely different. And probably one of the smartest things they did is that your skills just magically go up as you level up. You don't have to worry about figuring out what points you want to put in. You know, that they have that whole system of proficiency, which we didn't even get into, uh, where you have trained, expert, master, legendary, or untrained, and that just gives you pluses to your roles. So if you're trained at something, you're just going to automatically be better at that skill forever, whether or not you ever do anything with that skill ever again, because once you're trained in it, you're trained in forever. And then as you level up, you get trained in more skills. So instead of you sitting there and just endlessly putting points into your skills over and over again, every time you level up, you're like, oh, cool. What do what new skill do I want to become an expert at or master at? And what skill do I want to maybe become trained in and like learn about? And again, richer characters and it helps with actually playing the game. I'm interested to see what we do with the kind of open-ended lore mechanic. Because um, I have, Prue has lore warfare. And I, in PF1, I, I was never asked to make a warfare check. And I think that's the way these open-endeds are going to be, is we weren't asked to make these kind of checks. So we're going to have to ask the GM, hmm, this situation, w would this call for a warfare check? And I'm thinking that's going to give us a little bit more room to kind of develop our characters that way. Yeah, it reminds me, that they had lore as an unchanged skill, and I remember whenever playing with background skills, that was always one that was fantastic to take, because then I could say, 
you know what? I don't know a lot about the religions of the world, but I know a heck of a lot about Phrasma, because I'm a Phrasman priest, and well, let me tell you about Phrasma all day long. I, I can't, you know, I don't, I don't know the religions of the world, I don't know what the orcs worship, but I know Phrasma super good. Well, it's also the difference between choice and interesting choice. It's like, you know, when you had all those points, particularly if you were like a skill monkey type of character, it got to the point where it's just like, okay, now I gotta put 10 or 11 points into various things, but there, it, it almost stopped meaning anything. It's almost just like, okay, busy work. Whereas it seems like the, cho the you know, choosing skills and deciding what to actually get better at, and this one's going to be a little bit more, you know, represent interesting choice and choice that builds you as a character instead of just, you know, grinding out numbers. That's a good way to look at that. I hadn't thought about it like that in... In hindsight, I was definitely doing that when I was picking out my skills. I'm like, hmm, which ones of these does my character know? But when you're just sitting on eight skill points, you're like, where am I going to assign these this level? You really feel like you're auditing your character instead of building your character. Yeah, I was actually doing that the other day in uh, in our Starfinder. Even in Starfinder, they still have that. I mean, I was, I was doing, we had to level up recently. And Tuttle at this point has like a 24 or 25 intelligence, so he gets like 11 or 12 skill points. And it's like, okay, here's the five skills that I put points in every level. And here's the four skills that I haven't put points in in a while. And then here's three points, and what do I want to do with those? And it was, I mean, you know, it, it was choice, but it wasn't particularly interesting choice. It was also something that was had to happen right it was necessary because in starfinder for example they did a similar thing where they made very linear dcs as you leveled up and their assumption was that you were going to pick a number of skills that you got and maximize them all and not just drop a point here or there because there's really less use for it and they just assumed whatever you're rolling you had max ranks in it and that was an assumption of the math. And like my first character, I know I just spread skill points all over the place and I ended up being terrible at everything by like third or fourth level. And this helps you avoid that pit trap. They can keep their linear DC progressions and keep the math really tight. But by tying your bonus to your level automatically and not having all these fiddly skill ranks, they're basically saying, once you've chosen you're going to be good at that skill, we guarantee you're going to be good at that skill. And something else they tied into skills is your ability to actually even then use that skill. The easiest example of that is thievery, is that, you know, in the old game, you can just level up thievery and you can be as good, well, except for trap finding, but in theory, you can be as good almost as a thief, even if you weren't a thief. You could be a fighter who just happened to dabble in thievery. Well, not anymore, because now you have to be a lot of these traps you'll see <laughs> as you play that there'll be a trap and it's like, okay, if you are not expert at trap finding or sorry, thievery, you cannot find the trap. Does not matter. You can look for that trap till the end of time and you will never find that trap because you are not trained in this skill. And that also helps as a gate to allow characters who spend the time and dedication to their skills to really shine. And it is really a simple way and an elegant way to allow characters to do what they're best at without taking away what other characters are also trained at. If you see, if you look in the rules, go to the trap section, you'll see what I mean. Because it actually says how you need to actually be trained and what level you have to be to even disable it. 
And as I said, this bleeds into everything. You know, that bleeds into learning magic or crafting. Um, you know, it, it goes, the most obvious one is just thievery because it's, it's right there in the rules. Well, I think that branches into a really important topic. Anybody can use their, their general skills to pick up training in thievery. And then as they level up their class, they can then evolve their thievery into expert. That can be a fighter, that can be a bard, that can be anybody. Where you're kind of no longer forcing someone who's going to play the rogue. And it works the same way with a lot of the traditional roles of the RPG game. In 2nd edition, we no longer need someone to be the healer. Your fighter could just take a lot of rank or uh, take a lot of expertise in medicine and just heal people with a healer's kit. Nobody's forced into playing these particular roles because the group doesn't have it. Now, I mean, there's a few things you're always going to need. You're always going to need a tank. You're always going to need some way to deal damage. But nobody's kind of shoehorned into a particular thing that maybe they didn't want to play just because the party needs it. And something else they did with skills is that combat maneuvers have all been removed and they're just replaced with skills, which I always thought made way more sense because like a grapple check, okay, a grapple check is now an athletics check. Ta-da! Like, all, you know, all that that whole, you know, like uh, wireframe of the flowchart of figuring out how the hell grapple works, it's just a roll. And if you're good at athletics, you might be good at grappling. And that's it. And that kind of goes through all the skills. It's just like, oh, you want a high jump? Okay, just do a stride and do a uh, athletics check. You want to do a long jump? Athletics check. You want to do grapple? Athletics check. You know, like a lot of your skills are now tied to what have been combat maneuver checks in the old system. So, by the way, what do you guys think? One thing that a lot of people probably missed is uh, take 10 and take 20, gone. Totally gone from the game. That's fine. Once you have critical fails and critical successes for skills, you know, it's not just beat a number anymore, right? It's it's a variable beat a number plus 10. And, you know, there's always going to be an element that you might royally mess it up. I dramatically miss take 20s and take 10s just for the reason that in real life you can kind of do those things. When I'm sitting down and painting a miniature, if I want to speed paint it, let's see what I get. I'm going to throw the dice and hopefully it'll turn out well, hopefully it doesn't. But if I want to spend all night long getting the details right, this miniature is going to come out a lot better as if I had taken that 20. And I kind of don't like that that option is no longer in my hands. Kind of. They do mention that in the rules, and that's something else the rules does a lot of. Is that they do give the GMs a lot of power. And like if you said, oh, I'm going to paint that miniature, uh, you, you can be like, okay, it's just a regular roll. It says, but instead of me taking eight hours to detail that miniature, I'm going to take three days. Then I'll say, okay, make the roll and I'll give you a plus 10. So you can kind of do it. It's just really big. It, it really just makes the GM have to do their job as opposed to you just making an automatic mechanic. I don't know. I, I miss it because it is a good shorthand for I'm just going to take a while and do it. But I also understand why they got rid of it, because there were too many times where it's like, all right, we need to pick the lock on this door. Well, we're not in any particular hurry because no one knows we're here. So I guess I'll just take 20 and blow the DC away. Oh, okay. And there was too much of that, I think, at times. Well, that's definitely true. But the other reason also is I hated it was for crafting. And crafting, take 10 and take 20 on crafting was like my pet peeve. It's like you eventually got so good that you could just do it and everything would be automatic. And now there's a mechanic in there where you have to roll. You always have to roll no matter what. 
no matter how good your craft is, no matter how low the quality of the item is you're trying to make. And there's, you know, if you get critical success, there's like some actual benefits. And that's something that Rob said. It's like once they added critical success and critical failure, they had to get rid of the take 10, take 20, because there's, you know, like if you're going to add that, you have to have the chance of failure and the chance of greater success. And if you have take 10 and take 20, there's no failure. It's only success. So you had to you had to get rid of it. These are great points. I just miss it is all. Yeah, well, don't worry. There's other things that are removed, too, that we can talk about in a little while. So why don't we get to feats? Because feats, again, I love feats because, man, you guys are going to see it. But feats can now be a reward because it's so flexible. It's, I mean, feats always kind of were flexible. I mean, that's kind of the nature of feats. But it seemed like they got rid of a lot of, oh, you have to have these insane amounts of prerequisites and the only prerequisites you would get is if you're a thief so you can never get these feats they sort of move those over into the actual class skills so feats looks like there's just a nice hodgepodge that really there's not bad ones either like i mean the thief feats were infamous for being pretty much worthless and i know in no direction they would randomly always select a thief feat and tell you how worthless it was. And it didn't matter what it was. Any thief feed was worthless. Pointless, worthless, throw it out. But so far, there's just really, you know, I mentioned maybe in five years it will be, but right now the feats really, they're all good. My favorite thing that they did with the feats is I saw them describe it like this in a seminar. They said they put all of the feats in different buckets. And then at different levels, they say, all right, go to this bucket and take a feat. So like almost every other level, you can go to your class feats and you can get a feat to get better at your class. Then you can get a skill feat to get better at a skill. Then you can get a general feat. Whereas in PF1, if you weren't always taking the right feat, you're eventually going to make yourself a little too underpowered. Sure, Iron Will was nice and it was a prerequisite for a lot of things, but a lot of times you just needed that weapon focus. You couldn't really take a lot of the fun feats because you just didn't have time in your build. This edition makes time for you. I do think that, I mean, some of the, like, the min-maxers are, are going to be a little bit frustrated at first because they're going to have to relearn how to do it. Because they, they in silo, in kind of creating these silos, it makes it a little harder to kind of make these really weird builds with, like, you know, grab this thing from that's traditionally associated with a melee and then this thing for spells. And I mean, and there's a little bit less of that with this system because everything's kind of in its own in the multiple little groupings or whatever. But I, I think people will eventually adjust to that. I will say the names of some of these feats are great too. I'm looking scare to death. I love that one. Legendary intimidation where you intimidate someone so much that they die. I'm a huge fan of, uh, of feats. The more the merrier. It all, you know, it, it gives that level of detail, right? That myself, I mean, I love the role playing aspect. I love the number crunching aspect. I love the, you know, I like to min max for a reason, you know? If I'm going to min max at all, it's going to be for because it's driving some part of my character's story or personality or background or something. So that feet tree or whatever they're going to call them now that helps build toward uh, a fun mechanic is even better. And it's, it's something I'm really looking forward to. I really like the tiered way they've done feats from a design standpoint, 
because then if I'm writing, uh, you know, more class abilities essentially and more feats, I don't have to worry so much about all these feat taxes that have to go behind it to make it feel balanced. So Whirlwind Attack and PF1 is actually a really fantastic feat. A lot of people don't take it because it's like the seventh or eighth down the chain. It's, it's so hard to get everything you need to finally get Whirlwind Attack. And by the time you do, you have Iterative Attacks and then maybe it's not even worth it. Uh, in PF2, you actually get to say, all right, well, Whirlwind Attack is an X level feat. And when you get there, you get Whirlwind, boom, done. Uh, you don't have all these giant prerequisites to get to Whirlwind. And I think that space opens up a great number of design choices because you can have this great idea and say, oh, but it's so powerful. Well, you know what? It's about as powerful as you should be at level 12. Let's just make it a level 12 class feat. Done. Let me be the first to say good riddance to the feet taxes. I will not miss them. Yeah, feet taxes, again, it's one of those. It seemed like a good idea when they built the system. It means it seems logical, but in practice, especially after years and years and years of feet taxing, it, it sucks. It just sucked. And they actually still have feet taxing, but they do it very differently. They have it where you have to be have a prerequisite of trained at a certain level in a skill, which brings you back to, I like that. It's like, okay, if you want to have, I'm just like pulling something up here, ward disarmament, you have to be an expert in thievery. And that gives you ability, you know, that's, that's a, a helps your trap sense in helping, you know, uh, disarming traps. It doesn't matter what other feats you took. It's actually your prerequisite is how trained you are in a skill. And that happens throughout. So as long as you're skill trained and you continuously get your skills up to higher levels, you can then take higher level feats. You don't have to worry about taking the five feats before that one. And again, really smart design. The one thing I think they missed out on is that they did call everything feats. And when I first saw that, I thought, this is great. That way, when you say you get a bonus feat, it can literally be a class feat, a skill feat, a general feat, whatever kind of feat that you want, an ancestry feat. And then they didn't do that. They just siloed them into feats are cool things you can do. Here's a bunch of different types, but they don't really cross over that much with the very, very few exceptions. And I think that was sort of a misstep. It would have been, I think, really neat to have instead of, hey, you get a bonus, whatever feat. It's like, no, no, no you just get a feat at you know, fifth level, 10th level, whatever level you want to give them out, that can be anything. And I think that would have been even more flexible. I actually spoke to Stephen Raddy McFarland about that in my interview. They tried to do that. They actually went through, perfect is the word level, because <laughs> everything is a level. And they wanted to actually try to remove that, like spell level. They wanted to make something else versus class level and so forth. And in the end, they couldn't. They, there was just too much, there's too much history with that. It, they also want to make sure that people from other game systems or, you know, Pathfinder can, you know, speak the language without having to relearn everything. I mean, look how much trouble we're having with ancestry versus race. <laughs> and that was only one. So I felt like I, I got it because I think they actually tried it, but then they realized they just couldn't. It would have been too far of a leap. At least with ancestries, uh, you have the ABCs of character creation. So I think eventually we'll learn to say ancestries. So with that, if you guys want to move on to equipment, equipment is interesting. As usual, the equipment for these core rule books I always find is really not that big because you know for a fact another book is going to come out 
the adventurer's handbook or toolbook is always one of the best sellers period end of story of any edition of any role-playing game everyone buys it everyone needs it everyone wants it and so you know they're going to put in the basics and they they actually put in i wouldn't say they didn't put in enough but i'm actually almost surprised the small number of armor sets the small number of weapons now i feel like i think pathfinder and if you want to go back to D&D first edition, like where there was 30 different pole arms, there was too many weapons. There's just too many weapons. I feel like it's a good balance between the two, but it definitely feels like, you know, that's going to have room for improvement, but that's okay. Cause you know, that's going to happen. And also the rarity system. Oh, the rarity system. Oh my God. Do I love the rarity system? Yeah. I do remember you gushing about that with uh, Steven on the other interview. And I, I think that that's a, fantastic choice uh you're able to put something in again from a designing standpoint you're able to put something into a book that is really really cool and uh, maybe a little bit game breaking or a little bit optimal but you slap a rare tag on it and now you've given the gm something to say this is a reward for your players not something your players can just go yeah and i pick up this rare armor no big deal yeah and one of the main reasons they also did that is also to give the power for the GM, because I don't know how many times, especially when they start adding more weapons and more armor, that everyone's going to figure out what the best combinations are. But as soon as they make those and they slap uncommon on them, which is they're going to do, because I already have the Lost Omens World Guide, and they do that a lot. There's a lot of stuff in there that's uncommon. The GM could, it's in the rules. The GM could say, oh, no, it's not in my game. Sorry, it's uncommon. You can't find it. And maybe you can find it later as a quest item or maybe you can find the formula later as a quest item but if it's not common then you can't find it easily and that's the rules and it's hard to argue with that i like that literally every weapon has its own trait that goes with it that kind of sets it apart from the other weapons in its say die class there didn't used to be a lot of reasons to take say a weapon that dealt d10 when you could take one that does d12 and does all the same things but now your d10 weapon might have sweep and trip and disarm on it but even still your d12 weapon will then have i don't know it looks like fatal d12 or something every weapon is unique in its own way and it looks like they're all worth taking this time around the more equipment you got the better i guess you know even starfinder give me guns give me books of guns and pathfinder give me books of swords and armor all day every day thank you i am curious to see how the weapons are going to play out because i know for me whenever i played a martial character in pathfinder one i would like a lot of players latch on to a specific weapon or specific fighting style and that was the thing i did and now that there's so many different traits i'm really curious to see if martial characters gravitate more toward maybe not the golf bag of weapons but just having two maybe three different weapons that give them some situational bonuses where they might switch depending on the sorts of things they're up against and i think a large part of that honestly is going to have to deal with the three different physical damage types do i need piercing slashing bludgeoning what what is it going to solve the problem for this particular creature so spells huh you like magic I think they've done a great job of taking some concepts that they already had in place in Pathfinder and were way back in place in the old Psionics book of basically saying, I have this spell and at level one, it's fine for level one. But then as I get more powerful, the spell gets more powerful too. 
And I think that is fantastic because no longer are you sitting on really low level spells going, well, I guess I'll never cast this, you know, burning hands again. Now, if you were a level 12 spellcaster and you want to do burning hands, go ahead and dump a bucket of d6 of fire damage on anything within 15 feet because you're just going to rain fiery destruction. And I think that's really cool. It gives a lot of versatility to spellcasters who really want to figure out exactly what they want to do with their spells. And I think that makes it so that spontaneous casters aren't shackled with these early choices that were good for the rest of their lives, uh, hoping that they can eventually swap that out for something useful again. Can we talk about how well the three action system works with the spell casting system now? How you can have, say, one spell, but then you get three different versions of that same spell, depending on if you choose to use material, verbal, and or somatic components. Vanessa, I know you're doing a little bit of that with Celeste right now. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with it. How does, how does that work? Yeah, so every component has, whether that's verbal, somatic, or material, uh, essentially equals one action. There are some things in the game that can swap out what certain actions are so that we, you know, like a silent spell, you don't need verbal anymore, things like that. And it's pretty cool. One of the things I like that this does as well is the act three action economy means if you have the right combination of spells, you can cast two spells at once. You see this in our first episode where Celeste just gets, uh, where she gets in a bit of trouble. <laughs> And she's able to quickly throw up a shield spell, sanctuary on herself, and protect herself against dying in the very first combat of the game after we've already ordered all the art. So I thought that was uh, something that was really nice to be able to have that sort of flexibility. And I really look forward to using spells like heal more often that have a different, slightly different effect depending on how many actions you decide to spend with it. So something else about the spells that I like a lot is they added the keywords and I can get into a whole I already did I went into keywords a lot if you want to listen to keywords and what I think about them and why they did them and what why they're so good is when I spoke to Stephen Radney McFarlane we talked about the keywords is that allows them to cut down a lot of the wordage and if you look at some of these spells well some all the spells they all have keywords associated with them so you don't have to worry about chain lightning it's electricity. Well, you know why? Because it has electricity in the keyword. Burning hands, it's fire, because it has fire in the keywords. They don't have to spend time writing what type of spell these are anymore. It saves time, it makes them much more efficient, it saves space, and it's also easier for you to digest what these spells do with these keywords. And again, th those keywords are everywhere, but on the spells is where they really come out and shine, because very few spells have more than or sorry, less than two keywords. In fact, I'm looking at Cataclysm that has eight keywords. You know, Cataclysm's already a big spell, but the keywords helps reduce it. In fact, if it didn't have those keywords, I could see that taking almost a page alone. Oh, those keywords are fantastic. Uh, I have something brewing I'm using right now that is gonna really take advantage of that keyword system and that space saving and mental capacity saving of not having to re-explain things over and over of just saying uh this has the attack keyword this has the flourish keyword they do what those keywords do end of story i like that this 10th level spells i don't have a lot to say about that i just think it's pretty cool they said the reason they did that is because first they knew that not all ninth level spells were created equal so they wanted to make 10th level spells all fantastic and 
it also made more sense is that you had levels 1 through 20 and now spell levels 1 through 10. Like everything should be divisible by 5. And they did that. They, you know, things are, it was kind of weird when you had nine levels of spells, but only, you know, in 20 levels, it didn't quite work out. And they've done that throughout. Like you, it takes a little while for you to see that, but the math is much more elegant and makes a lot more sense everywhere. And this, that, that's actually why they added 10. Well, I'll go down to the other end of the spectrum. I, one of the things I actually always liked about 4E that finally made it is the notion of that, like the scalable cantrip so that the, so that casters always have something they can do. Cause that was always kind of demoralizing when you basically like run out of spells and also it lets you be more flexible because you don't have to keep taking damage spells just to be viable in combat you can actually then focus on utility and you can focus on making arguably more interesting characters because that one spell sc scales and gives you something you can do all the time funny you should mention that that was exactly my design decision around celeste is she has exactly one attack spell it's probably the only one i'll ever get with her depending and it is a cantrip. And the idea is, hey, if I have to attack something, I have a decent option. And it, you know, it's not as amazing as actual offensive spells, but it's not a waste of my two actions. And something else they also added was focus spells, which is, I think, clearly new, which is those spells and abilities that you can use once, like every 10 minutes. So it's like, okay, here's something that's pretty powerful. And you can do it, but you can only do it once. But then it doesn't go away. It's not like, you know, first level spells, second level spells. It's like, okay, you did it. Okay, just rest. And that's almost a little bit like encounter abilities from 4, 4E, if you will. But because of the way they, you know, handle it, and it's kind of like a spell, it works great. And uh, I, I think that's a good addition because you need to have things that don't run out. You need to have ways for spellcasters to be good from beginning, middle, and end of the day. And, you know, first edition, you know, how many times would you go out and play and, you know, run the dungeon for 15 minutes and then go rest for the rest of the day because everyone's done? You know, or at least the spellcasters were done. And hopefully this new system with the scaling cantrips and the focus spells, that this will go away. I think those two things will minimize it for sure. You're going to see more hey, we fought a really tough room, let's all just wait for 10 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, and get all our focus points back, and then continue, rather than uh, the five-minute adventuring day where we just blast through all the doors and take everything down, and oh, well, that's all our spells for the day. And especially once you add in how they added mundane healing of hit points with the medicine skill, that takes a long time to try. So if you're going to do it, that's going to be during that downtime where people are regaining their focus points. And I think that synergizes really, really well. So we've been talking for a while. There's only three things left I want to go over. We'll go over fighting. We'll go over crafting and the magic treasure because magic is interesting how they did it in this game and then just kind of like final thoughts. So fighting. So the fighting chapter is fascinating because I went through and looked at the original Pathfinder book and I believe it's something like 24 pages is dedicated to fighting. Now fighting is a very very big part of Pathfinder. Everyone knows that it's a big part of the game and yet the fighting chapter in this book is really only something like eight pages long and then if you take out the pictures maybe six pages and yet it's just as complex if not more complex than first edition. And that's something you see everywhere. It's like, okay, they somehow made it more complex yet easier. How? 
And that's really a testament to the three-action economy and just how combat has become much easier, much faster, and yet you still have a million options because everything is in action. Minor actions, free act. Well, there's still free actions, but like you know, oh, that's a move action. That's a standard action. That's a full action gone. It's so easy. It's like I want to get off the cart. That's an action. I want to move here. That's an action. I want to attack. That's an action. Next. Well, that's the thing. I think they didn't remove the complexity, but I think they moved it to the other side of the equation. They put it into the powers, like we talked about with the casting, where everything's an action. But your choices of what you do with those actions become more interesting and therefore give you more flexibility. I mean, it's, superficially, it sounds kind of simplistic. It's like, oh, everything's in action. Well, but then what you do with those three actions and how you chain them together is what actually, you know, the meat and potatoes of it. Yeah, they, they spread out the mechanic so that it's encompassing more than just a fight in a, in a way, right? Like, because it's multiple actions... Actions are just the stuff you do in a timed event, right? Like combat or, you know, uh, okay, there's a real, there's a boulder coming down that hill. You bet you got this many rounds before it hits the fan, right? Do your actions. The whole mode um, thing, you know, where what are you doing just before a fight? That matters, right? Your initiative isn't just a flat deck check anymore. It's a skill check based on what you're doing prior to uh, combat happening. So it's it's kind of a whole better flow for the whole situation. I do like how the encounter mode, the exploration mode, and the downtime mode are all different things with their own different actions, and they kind of inform each other. It makes adventuring just a little bit more dynamic, and that's a good thing. And it makes sense. That's the way a lot of us were playing the game anyway, is where, okay, we're exploring the dungeon now. Oh, we're in combat now. Oh, we're taking several days to craft or retrain skills or you know work on our brewery or whatever we're doing offhand it also kind of uh encourages gms to give downtime mode i think that the ideas of adventurers never having a day off is ubiquitous but one of the things i like about downtime mode is that they put rules with it because the problem with downtime mode was i just felt like people didn't know what to do and they didn't know how to do it, and there was no rules with it. And it, it's they talked about this is that you know in the future they're going to talk less about how to GM. Like like everyone knows how to GM, and GMs don't even want to read it. You know, like they want they don't want to know that. They want to know what can I do to be a better GM? How can I give my players options and have rules set against those options? So downtime mode is great. I mean, if you want to make money, like you can make money. And it has a nice, complex system that's not OP that shows how you can spend a week in town doing odd jobs to earn some cash if you want. It's really fun. I'm excited to see how that plays out as we move further into the fall of Plaguestone. So something else they added is hero points. What do you guys think of the hero point system, which I think of as get out of death free card? I'm a fan. Yeah, as a long-time organized play player, I am used to having my reroll at a table, and at, with Pathfinder, anytime I play a module or something outside of organized play, it's always weird to me. I'm like, wait, I don't get one free get out of jail free card? I don't get one reroll tonight at all? And it just, it, it's a little nerve-wracking. I actually really like, from a story perspective, having that reroll, because there are sometimes 
you are doing something epic and amazing and fantastic, and then you roll a three on the die, and you're like, this is this is not what I wanted. And so being able to have that reroll to make something that you really want story-wise to work uh, is great. It gives you narrative control, protects your character, love it all over the place. Well, in conception, it makes sense, too, that your character's always doing their best, but, you know, sometimes for these rare moments where they know all eyes are on them, they push just a little bit harder, boom, burn that hero point if you roll that three. Well, keep in mind, the hero points also bring you back from the dead. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I kind of like it. It's not that I feel bad when I kill characters, but it is that, especially at these lower levels, you can die really quick, and it's hard to play. And D&D 5th Edition kind of took care of this by making levels 1 through 5 go really fast. And also, I think, there's like a, I haven't played 5th in so long, but there was something like, oh, if you die, you can just come back. Like, okay, that's one way to handle it is like, you know, you just really can't die at low levels. But here, it's like, oh, if you die, well, first of all, it's, a, it's the character's choice to come back. The GM doesn't say you magically come back. They have to have the hero points to spend. So the PC has to decide to do it. Not that they wouldn't, most likely. Who knows? You can sit there and continue dying. The It just stabilizes you if you use the hero point. But if you want to risk it and think, you know what? I want to keep my hero point around. And uh, I still got three more rounds before my character dies. I'm going to risk it. And you can. So it still puts it in the power of the PC. And also as a GM, I don't feel so bad <laughs> to actually kill off a character because, okay, cool, I killed you off. Maybe you shouldn't put your head in the oven and see what happens. I mean, it's it sucks to die at an early level or whatever, or any level. But yeah, early levels in D&D are the kind of the only times you can die in, in by hit point damage. Like, you know, with a big hit, you know, to double your hit points, you're dead, right? But even if you drop to zero, you have to fail three death saves before you make, you know, three life saves or whatever. I can appreciate systems that are old school, like Dungeon Crawl Classics, first in D&D 1E, whatever. You know, it's part of the experience to, like, die. So you have a bunch of characters to play throughout this meat grinder game. But, you know, uh, we're the heroes of the story. My character is... You know, in this action film, right? This dramatic action film. Some random crossbow that I get hit with in the eye from a non-main villain taking me out. Eh, anticlimactic, not fun for me. The other thing I th- the other thing is the, li- the little thing is the GM tends to have places he can put his thumb on the scale if he needs to, but the player generally doesn't. So I th- hero points are the place where the player actually has the ability to kind of put the thumb on the scale every once in a while. I think that's kind of cool. So let's jump quickly into treasure and magic items. So they definitely kind of went the way of D&D in that the magic items are less overall powerful. The most obvious example of this is that, oh, Let's see, how do you increase your stats? How do you get higher intelligence and dex and strength? And oh, you don't. That's not available till 17th level, if then. Wow, you really got to build your character as you want it to be built and pay attention, and magic items are not going to save you. And magic items, although powerful, are not game breaking, that they have lots of little powers. And I, I kind of like that. 
I want to ask you about. I know you don't you don't remember the play test that much, but I want to know. I liked the way your plus one longsword did plus d8 damage. Is that still how it works? Sort of. Uh, so rather than just doing it because you got an enhancement bonus, they have two different runes. They have a potency rune and a striking rune. And a potency rune just gives you like that plus one, plus two, plus three to hit. And the striking rune is the one that gives you the extra damage. But uh, say so, like if it's a striking plus two, that'd be an extra 2d8 on a longsword. Is that how that works? Right. So if you had a striking level two rune or however they they announce it, it's one, two, and three. Uh, If you have the second level of that striking rune, then yeah, your 1d8 longsword then becomes a 3d8 longsword. I like that. I'm excited to have one someday. And the other thing is you can move the runes from weapon to weapon, which is awesome. That's a big deal, especially if you like the concept of your character using a particular weapon, and then you find a plus two battle axe, and I don't, I don't use battle axes. I'll move that rune. Yeah, they did a lot of combinations, and we actually talked about this as well, is that like armor, like they combined armor as well as increasing saves that's all combined now because think about how many times and i hated this in pathfinder every single character you would do the same exact things you'd get the same exact cloak of resistance you would get this you would just get the same five magic items the core five yeah 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 you just constantly do that now yeah they're there but first of all it takes a lot longer to get them okay you won't even start seeing plus ones and stuff until levels well for weapons it's a little sooner it's like level two or one but for armor it doesn't really start dropping to level five so you can't really get more powerful and you only get a little bit more powerful but it also doesn't take up two slots it's only one slot now and they've done a lot of that they've done a lot of compression of the slots well yeah like everyone wants magic armor but now since it also gives you a resistance bonus at more powerful levels great that means i can wear whatever fun cloak i come across Um, I also like the transferring of the runes because sometimes you are the character that's like, I am the master of the Falcata and I'm so good at this weapon that only appears in Taldor and we're adventuring in Tian Sha and everything's a katana or wakazashi and it's great that it's magic, but it's not my Falcata that I paid for character art for. This is what I want. Now you can say, great, it's a magical katana. That's pretty cool. I'm going to transfer that rune over to my Falcata. I can still adventure and have the concept I want. And I think that is fantastic. What do you guys think of the new rule where you can only have 10 magic items? Now, I think 10's a lot, but I am curious to see the day when you finally get, oh, I got 11 magic items every day. You know, it's like, it's kind of like spells in a way. It's like, well, you got to figure out which magic items you want because if you go above 10, you can't you can't have more than 10. That's the, that's the magic number. And it can make some pretty interesting decisions, but it also allows you to then have the strange rare stuff that, oh, maybe this is only good in a volcano or only this is good in a blizzard. And we know we're going to that volcano, so I can switch out my magic items that will work better in the volcano. I'm coming from Starfinder most recently, so for 10, 10 is an embarrassment of riches compared to 2. So 10 is actually quite a bit, considering that consumables and things don't require a, an investment in those magic items. It's only things that you wear, and so it doesn't include your armor, but I be- or your weapons, but I believe it in- includes armor. But even so, that's that's a lot of different magic items. And because we don't have this Christmas tree of stat boosting items that we're you know guaranteed to have to use, 
then it means, okay, I can actually use the magic boots when I get them, and the magic cloak, and the cool belt, because I'm not worried about all these stat boosting items. I, I don't know, it, 10 seems like a lot to me. Uh, it seems like if you start hitting that ceiling, there is a feat that'll raise it by two if your charisma's high enough, and maybe that's worth the investment, but I don't see a lot of people hitting that ceiling. Just as an FYI, I'm sorry, just as an FYI, I believe with armor, I think you get the plus either way. But you have if there's if the armor has any special abilities, you have to use an investment point on those. That sounds right. Honestly, at ten, I don't predict that a lot of people are really going to notice that there even is a maximum until super late in the game. Uh, real quick, Steve, you had mentioned that there's no way to boost your stats until you get level seventeen and hit your apex item. But it does have that Starfinder effect where every fifth level and five levels thereafter, you get four free boosts to your stats, so you can keep raising them up. Uh, every five levels that you advance. Oh yeah, I didn't want to say, of course, through actual character creation, your stats increase a lot. You actually do major boosts every five levels as opposed to every four levels. But there's no magic item that you can get at level two that will increase your stats. Which, how many times have you done that? Like, oh, hey, you know, you get, you get those magic items and you have bear strength and you have those spells. Like, the math, and I know why they did this. I We can spend an hour on this. The math is very tight. And the only way you can keep math working is you can't let people break the math. And the number one way to break the math is to start fooling around with people's stats. Because that breaks the math probably faster than anything else in the game. Well, guess what? You can't break the math until you're level 17. And even then, go crazy, break the math, because at those levels... The math if you that you're breaking is for stats you probably don't even care about. So why don't we just quickly go around the table and see, is there anything you thought that was missing? What's your final thoughts? Obviously, this is going to be with us for a long time. Who wants to go first? I had at least one thing we didn't talk about. Um, the whole opening up of combat by making attacks of opportunity a little less omnipresent. Um, if, if you somehow haven't heard yet basically they took the attack of opportunity and turned it from something everybody could do into a specialized class skill fighters get it day one and then a couple of the other melee classes can take it as as class feat but the idea that everybody has gone the way of dodo bird and now makes combat a little more flexible i have a small aside I kind of am a little weirded out by the fact that fighters get power attack and the barbarian doesn't. In what world does that make sense? You get rage. Yeah, but you don't get power attack. It's just a linguistic thing for me. Like, I remember always taking power attack. It's kind of baked in, but it, it I just miss choosing power attack. You miss being having to take power attack. Oh, maybe that's it. You know, feet I have tack, Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, that's what it is. But I do love a two-hander plus 50% damage. Mm, yummy. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's going to definitely be some growing pains, but, man, I don't know. I mean, I for someone who's played D&D his whole life and played so much Pathfinder, I mean, one of the main reasons we went to Starfinder is that it kind of felt like we were Pathfindered out, is that we've seen everything, we've done everything, the lowest levels are always the same. Yeah, there was lots of new classes, and we were trying them out, but then you still ended up getting the same magic items. You just kept going through the same motions. 
And that's why we jumped to Starfinder, because I kind of was sick of it. And I think all of us were. And now we got a brand new version, which, of course, will be a lot of fun. And if they did what I think they were able to accomplish is just have so many choices. Again, it's like Magic or Hearthstone, where you can just build so many different possible outcomes. It's going to take a long, long time to get bored. Yeah, overall, I'm excited to see how it plays out. You know, I mean, I played one session, so I made one character. So, and it went well. <laughs> so, um, I'm looking, looks looking good so far. Let's see how, let's see how she flies. Yeah, I think this is going to be the beginning of another great run for Paizo. I think this is going to be another great game. I'm looking forward to playing the heck out of it. I'm looking forward to writing the heck out of it. It just, it opens up so many possibilities that I think they've really hit a lot of the design goals that they needed to hit to really make this game a success. Yeah, I won't even get into the whole aspect of designing. I mean, uh, Vanessa writes a lot for Paizo. I write somewhat for Paizo. I mean, I had to design monsters using second edition for um, an upcoming adventure path, and it was so much easier. I mean, you know what it was like to design a monster for first edition? Oh my lord, or or an NPC, you want to kill yourself. But it was it was easy. Oh, I remember. I did tons of them for legendary. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other discussion that the system is built in every way better it's built for players it's built for developers it's built for the print there's less print you have to worry about it's also built for the gms is that there's a lot more information on the page without actually increasing more information because of keywords like they they really they look i don't know if it's going to be perfect and i'm sure we'll find little nitpicks over the next couple of months and years as people play it but they sure as heck have impressed me from what I've seen so far. Anyone else have some final thoughts? We hit all mine. Nope, feeling good. All right. Well, with that, this will wrap up our very preliminary roundtable discussion of Pathfinder 2nd Edition Core Rulebook. Next, we'll do Bestiary. No, no, we're not going to do every single book. Although Jason is going to be writing a review of every single book on the Roll for Combat website. So do check that out. Just go to ruleforcombat.com and you can read all of Jason's reviews. Ooh, the pressure's on now. Well, the pressure <laughs> is on. Well, you're doing the core rules. You're doing the beast and You do the Lost Omens World Guide. And then you got a little leeway. If you're going to have... They're not coming out with another book for, I think, a few months. So you got a little bit of uh, time to rest and relax. But do check that out. And, of course, do check out the podcast where we're playing through the fall of Plague Stone with, well, the people you just heard here. And you can hear what we think about Pathfinder as we play through this adventure. But with that, thanks for listening. And we will all talk and see you later. You've been listening to Roll for Combat, a Pathfinder actual play podcast. If you have a question or comment for the show, please visit us at RollForCombat.com. You can also find us and play various role-playing games on our Discord channel at Discord.RollForCombat.com. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media platforms. You've been listening to Roll for Combat. Until next week, always remember that in Pathfinder 2nd Edition, anyone can be the healer now. I'm looking at you, fighter. Fighter.